During his ministry at Aberavon in Wales in the 1920s and 30s, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to hold what was called the Brotherhood Meetings on Saturday nights in the church. And so it would be a meeting of, uh, of men from the church, and sometimes I guess men from the community as well would come, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones would chair the meetings, and then there would be a discussion of some aspect of the Christian life or Christian practice or Christian doctrine. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones's biographer, Ian Murray, noted that there was an element of severity about the leader which is not generally associated with church activities. On one occasion, an individual was literally put out. The man rose to complain. I cannot believe in the deity of Christ. And Murray goes on and he says, After a moment's careful scrutiny of the speaker... With an instant and, as it proved, accurate assessment, Dr. Lloyd-Jones replied, You have said that more than once. Very well, you will say it no more here. You must go. The man left, only to return subsequently in a different spirit and to take his place among believers. Now, as we come to our text in Titus chapter 1 this morning, we are reminded that sometimes, under some circumstances, rebukes and reproofs must be severe. So let's look to the text. Titus chapter 1, we're in verses 10 through 16 this morning. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled." They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Now, as we consider this passage, we'll consider it under three main headings. First of all, the severity of reproof. Secondly, plundering the pagans. And thirdly, purity and defilement. So we have the severity of reproof, plundering the pagans, and purity and defilement. So in this passage, Paul elaborates on the requirement that he laid down for elders in verse 9. As we saw last week, in verse 9, Paul said that an elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And now Paul tells us why this is so important particularly as it relates to the situation of Titus there on the island of Crete and those elders that Titus would ordain on the island of Crete. The reason they have to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict is because, as he says, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. How are they doing this? By teaching what they ought not to teach for the sake of sordid gain. Now, what is it? that they were teaching. 
Well, given the evidence that we have in verse 10, that these men are from the circumcision, given what we see in verse 14 about this giving of attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn aside from the truth, and later on what Paul mentions in chapter 3, verse 9, about the foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, it seems that the situation confronting Titus here on Crete was very similar to what was confronting Timothy in Ephesus at about the same time as Paul has sketched out the situation in 1 Timothy. The elements are the same. There's these Jewish myths, there's a misguided emphasis on the teaching of the law, an emphasis on genealogies and so on. Putting the the pieces together, it seems that this teaching had its roots among professing Christians of a Jewish background. And this teaching was dangerous, had to be refuted, Paul said. Those who were teaching it, he says, need to be rebuked severely. But why? Why is this such a big deal? Couldn't Titus and the rest of the church just live and let live with these men? Well, no, they couldn't. And the reason is because this teaching was dangerous. It was false. These men were deceivers. These men had turned away from the truth and they were devising commandments and seeking to lay them on the necks of these new Christians. And this is unacceptable. It must not be tolerated in the life of the church. And this is why elders, as Paul said, must hold fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching so that they will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. There were precious Christians who were being disturbed in their faith because of this false teaching. There were precious Christians who were being exploited because there was a greedy scheme afoot here. We can't be sure of all of the particulars of what this teaching was doing and how it was disturbing these households, but whatever it was doing, it was laying extra legalistic burdens on the backs of these Christians and likely, as such teachings usually do, likely directing them away from the grace of God in the gospel of Christ. Whatever these teachers were doing, they were directing hearts away from the truth and directing them toward fables, toward myths. When legalism of various kinds comes in the door, usually there is a corresponding lessening of emphasis on the fact that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Legalism usually comes at the expense of the free grace of the gospel. And when that happens, it automatically shifts our focus away from Christ to ourselves and to our own efforts. Am I good enough? Have I done enough for God? Have I checked all of the right boxes, and so on. Those are the wrong questions to be asking, because the answer will always be no. We've never checked all the right boxes. We will never be sufficient. God's law, rightly understood, will always tell us that. The gospel of Christ is sufficient, and through faith he is ours, and in him we find the forgiveness of sins and peace and reconciliation with God. We are made new by the working of the Holy Spirit. We're changed, and in Christ we're made righteous. In Christ we grow in holiness. And any teaching that would lead us away from Christ and focusing on him is pernicious and must be stopped. And that is what Titus and the elders on Crete are supposed to do. They were supposed to rebuke these teachers and those who had imbibed this teaching in the hopes of reclaiming them in hopes that they would once again return to soundness in the faith. Now, when we think about this issue of rebuking error, we need to think carefully and we need to make proper distinctions. First of all, we need to understand that errors differ in degree 
and persons who hold those errors differ in their disposition. And this means that not all error and not all sin should be rebuked in exactly the same way. And we see this in the New Testament. And so, for example, when Paul speaks of believers falling into sin in Galatians 6.1, he says that others must restore such a one in spirit of gentleness. The situation in Galatians 6.1 speaks of believers who fall into sin or who are overtaken in a trespass. And the idea seems to be that these, these people are generally speaking faithful Christians. They just got caught up in a sin. They stumbled. And such people can often be dealt with gently. Many times believers can be spoken to and by the grace of God they will take correction. They will uh, take the correction that is offered to them to heart and they will repent and seek to make amends. But Paul sees a very different situation going on here on the island of Crete. These people are not sincere Christians who have simply had a moment of weakness and fallen into sin. These people in Crete are much more calculating than that. These men are rebellious deceivers. There's a certain willfulness about them. And they're trying to get money out of the gig as well. They've got dollar signs in their eyes, trying to make a profit by their teaching, going after sordid gain. And given the overall characteristic behavior of the people of Crete, which we'll consider in just a moment... Paul knows that something more than gentle correction and gentle admonition is needed here. As Chrysostom expressed it, such characters will not be managed by mildness. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Give them, he says, a stroke. For one method is not to be employed with all, but they are to be differently dealt with according to their various characters and dispositions. So we have to tailor, as it were, our reproofs according to the persons involved and according to the nature of the offense. And this raises then another question in regard to the policing and rebuking of errors in the life of the church. How should these instructions that were given here in our text be applied in our time? We should note, first of all, that these instructions are given explicitly to Titus and by extension to the elders of the churches. And we need to to notice from Scripture, though, that on the one hand, all believers should be taking part in admonishing one another, as we find in Romans 15, 14. We even commit to doing that in our church covenant, that we will admonish one another as occasion may require. But elders, even more particularly, are tasked with guarding the doctrinal well-being of the church, and that being the case, they should, should take the lead in situations where such a rebuke as described here becomes necessary. And then the follow-up question is, how should this take place? There is plenty of error running rampant in the world today. Does that mean that it's, it's my and Jim's job as elders to seek to identify all rebellious deceivers and rebuke them, either on social media or by phone call or by letter or email or personal meeting? Fortunately, I think not. I don't think that's what this passage is calling Jim and I to do as elders. Our first and foremost responsibility and task is right here, right here at Andover Baptist Church. You are the souls over whom we are called to keep watch. Should one of you become a rebellious deceiver and teach things that you ought not to teach, it is our calling then to rebuke you. Should you imbibe such teachings from elsewhere, it's our calling to rebuke you. I think I can speak for myself and for Jim and for Jamie as an elder in training that none of us desire to give cutting rebukes. That's 
not the kind of thing that wakes us up in the morning saying, wow, I'm excited to live today. We are mild-mannered men and would much prefer to use gentleness in all things. But please understand that circumstances may dictate that we have to conduct ourselves otherwise. And just to preempt that eventuality, let me just say that I beseech you to let us serve you in our calling with joy and not with grief. It would be a grief to us to have to give cutting rebukes. That's not what we want to do. We would much prefer to use gentleness in all things. When the Reformed Synod of the Swiss Canton of Bern met in January of 1532, they approved a document known to history as the Acts of the Synod of Bern, which was essentially a church order giving the pastors in the canton instruction as to how they should conduct themselves in their office as pastors. And interestingly enough, there's one chapter of the Acts of the Synod that was devoted to this issue of what and who should be reproved. And what they, what they said was that only those who are present and who hear ought to be addressed and reproved. And they said, what reformation does it bring us to scold with strong words those who are absent and to address people in attendance with youthless words? He says, they who are present have need of much teaching and reproof. And so the, uh, the, the point that they're, they're driving home is, is that the, the main focus of the instruction ought to be directed toward the people who are here. They, they did offer a caveat, though, that when you can kind of look out on the horizon and see some error kind of coming from, from a distant sphere, that it's okay to, to warn people about that, but that's not to be the, the main focus. You focus on the, the people who are right in front of you. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there. The priority in teaching... And reproof needs to be on the gathered local congregation. Certainly appropriate to warn against errors uh, that exist elsewhere so as to, to guard against them. But that's not to be the main focus of our instruction in the church. And so, brothers and sisters, let's seek to hold fast to the truth. Let's seek to avoid all that is false. And that's Paul's ultimate goal here, that people would be sound in the faith. And so may that likewise be our goal with respect to ourselves and with respect to our, our watch care over one another in our church, that we would be sound in the faith. And that brings us then to our second point, which is plundering the pagans. Now Paul quotes in verse 12 from the pagan poet Epimenides. Epimenides lived in the 5th or 6th century B.C. And Paul quotes there in verse 12 this statement about the prevailing nature of the inhabitants of Crete. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now what, what should we make of this? I think there are two separate issues that we need to kind of parse out here. And the first is the use of this, this generalizing statement about the inhabitants of Crete. We read something like that, and as we reflect on it a little bit, we might be wondering, is this really okay? That's a... Pretty strong statement. Is, is this okay that Paul speaks like this about these people? And then the second question uh, is this issue of how we as believers make use, how we may make use of worldly sources of information. Paul was apparently familiar with this man, Epimenides. He knew what he had said, and he was able to pull it out and apply it to this particular Situation. So we've got two issues we need to work through here. So the first question, is it all right to quote and agree with a general statement about a group of people in a given location the way that Paul does here? Well, when we acknowledge that Paul wrote 
as he did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we understand that the answer to that question has to be yes, but nevertheless, let's try to think about what's going on here so as to understand why. If Paul were alive today and posted something like verse 12 on social media, can you imagine what kind of backlash there would have been towards the Apostle Paul? Can you imagine the outrage? And so why is it that this statement that might appear to be very stereotypical and very derogatory is actually okay? Well, we need to understand for starters that, the, that this general assessment of the inhabitants of Crete was, was widespread. This is not just Paul's vote and Epimenides' vote. This is, this is pretty widespread in the ancient literature. And so the Greek historian Polybius from the 2nd century B.C. said this. He said, so much, in fact, do sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. The Roman statesman Cicero from the 1st century B.C., said, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. The reputation of Crete had spread far and wide in the ancient world, so much so that it had worked its way into the language itself. And so when we think about the name Crete, Crete is a noun. But the uh, the Greek speakers had created a verb out of that noun, and thus to play the, the Cretan, to kretidzo, was synonymous with to lie. If you, if you were playing the Cretan, you were lying. And one commentator described Paul's usage of Epimenides in verse 12 this way. He said, Paul's not making an ethnic slur, but is merely accurately observing, as the Cretans themselves and others did, how the sin that affects the whole human race comes to particular expression in this group. Or, as John Gill noted, some countries are distinguished by their vices, Some for pride, some for levity, vanity, and constancy. Some for boasting and bragging. Some for covetousness. Some for idleness. Some for effeminacy. Some for hypocrisy and deceit. And others, as the Cretans, it seems, for lying. It was their national sin. Now, I imagine that there were probably some Cretans who were probably not quite as steeped in the practice of lying as others. Perhaps there were some honest men among them, but nevertheless, the culture on Crete had this tendency, a very marked tendency toward lying. This was well known, this was often observed, and Titus, the recipient of this letter, might as well be prepared for what he's up against when he goes up against these false teachers. He might as well be ready for the fact that these false teachers are steeped in a culture of lying, and so a general admonition is not going to cut it with these people. And after noting uh, that the Cretans are always liars, Paul says, this testimony is true, and then he follows up with the instruction, therefore, in light of this, because these people are liars, because this is true, therefore, reprove them severely, so that they will be sound in the faith. In other words, you might as well be open and honest about what you're dealing with. Now, if I may give a a uh, parallel anecdote from my own experience that might help to, to illustrate the situation. Some 20 years ago, I was riding a Greyhound bus into Cincinnati somewhere in the middle of the night or the wee hours of the morning. And as we were approaching the city, the driver of the bus came over the intercom and he told us that we were getting close to Cincinnati. And he said that the city was full of artists. 
pickpocket artist that is. So gentlemen, check your wallets. Ladies, keep your purses with you at all times. The driver was simply making an observation, I suppose based on evidence, maybe first-hand experience, I don't know. But he was making this observation, and he wanted us to be ready for what awaited us when we stepped off the bus in Cincinnati. And Paul, likewise, wanted Titus to be ready to rightly counter the wicked tendency of these false teachers on Crete. And that brings us then to the second question here, which is the question of how we as believers may or may not make use of worldly sources of information. Paul made use of this pagan writer, Epimenides, and agreed with him. And so given the spirit-inspired apostolic example, we understand that there's a level at which this must be all right to interact with worldly pagan sources and utilize them for our purposes. But how should we think about this in light of our understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, to begin with, we need to understand exactly what we mean when we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. When we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, we mean, or at least we should mean, as the Second Helvetic Confession expressed it, that in this Holy Scripture, the universal Church of Christ has all things fully expounded, which belong to a saving faith and also to the framing of a life acceptable to God. We have everything that we need. Everything that we need to know in order to believe to be saved. Everything that we need to know in order to rightly live our lives before God. Everything that we need to believe for salvation is found in Scripture. Everything that God requires of us as believers is found in Scripture. If someone is trying to tell you to believe something as a Christian or to do something as though God would require it of you, a handy test is to just say, show me the verse. And if they can show you a verse or several passages of Scripture that, when rightly interpreted, relevantly speak either to that issue directly or else by necessary implications have bearing upon that issue, then we have to submit to Scripture. This is the final and all-sufficient authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. But with that said, we, we understand that Scriptures don't tell us everything that there is to know. Scriptures are not a cookbook, nor an auto repair manual, nor a medical textbook. The scriptures don't give us the particulars for doing surgery or building skyscrapers or doing differential equations. Now, to be sure, the Bible tells us how to do each of those things in a godly way, by loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and by loving our neighbors as ourselves. But there are true things in the world that are not expressly stated in Scripture. God has made the world in such a way that even the ungodly and the unbelieving have access to earthly and temporal truth. Calvin said that in reading the profane authors, the admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind, however much fallen and perverted from its original integrity, is still adorned and invested with admirable gifts from its creator. If we reflect that the Spirit of God is the only fountain of truth, we will be careful as we would avoid giving insult to Him, not to reject or condemn the truth wherever it appears. In despising the gifts, we insult the giver. God in His wisdom and grace has allowed even the ungodly to understand many true things and to communicate them with others. Such was the case here with Epimenides. Epimenides was not a godly man, but nevertheless... At least in this particular case, he made a true observation as to the general behavior of the people on Crete. And what is more important 
is to notice how Paul interacted with Epimenides. He didn't just follow Epimenides blindly. Instead, uh, Paul was familiar with this quotation. He compared it with the situation as he was familiar with on the ground in Crete, and he came away agreeing with him. And so he says at the beginning of verse 13, this testimony is true. In other words, Paul did not implicitly trust Epimenides the way that he does the prophets of the Old Testament. Paul's pattern of engagement with this ancient pagan is decidedly different from the way that Paul interacts with, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Moses. To cite something from the prophets settled settled the matter for Paul. Paul didn't need to follow a quotation from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Malachi up with the statement, this testimony is true. That was, that was a given for Paul. If it, if it came from the Old Testament, if it came from a prophet of God, it was true. If it came from a pagan poet, Epimenides, that required a little more, little more work. You have to read it and be like, hmm, okay, yeah, this testimony is true. And that's what Paul did here. So Paul could appropriate pagan literature and use it, and he could do so without taking his guiding and fundamental principles from the pagans. He could agree that they spoke truth in certain instances, but in regard to fundamental principles and ultimate beliefs, Paul and Epimenides were completely at odds with one another. And so we have to agree with what is true, whoever may have said it. If we deny the truth on the basis of who said it, then we ourselves are simply becoming liars. And also here, the very fact that Paul was able to cite Epimenides means that he had become familiar with him from somewhere. He had read or had heard this saying and then was able to retain it and then was able to pull it out for use at the appropriate time. And in this we see the the right way in which we ourselves are able to, to interact with pagan and worldly sources. We can interact with them, we can read what they have to say, we can listen to their observations and so on, but we always have to do so with scrutiny. We have to interact with the ungodly with our eyes wide open, always seeing to it, as Paul reminds us in Colossians 2, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, back in the ancient church in the 4th century, Basil the Great wrote a, uh, gave a, an address to young men concerning the right use of Greek literature. And he was actually dealing with this very issue of how Christians should approach non-Christian literature. And I think Basil's advice was quite solid. He was speaking of the pagan poets, and he said, When they recount the words and deeds of good men, you should love them and imitate them earnestly, emulating such conduct. But when they portray base conduct, you must flee from them and stop your ears, as Odysseus is said to have fled past the song of the sirens. For familiarity with evil writings paves the way for evil deeds. Therefore, the soul must be guarded with great care, lest through our love for letters it receive some contamination unawares, as men drink in poison with honey." And so he compared the Christian in this respect to, uh, to a bee. He says that a bee doesn't visit every flower. The bees go to the flowers which will serve their purposes. And he says they, bees don't take in everything from that flower. They only take as much as they need, and then they let the rest go. And he says, so if we are wise, we shall take from heathen books whatever befits us and is allied to the truth and shall pass over the rest. And so it must be with us. When we're interacting with the world, we have to do so with eyes wide open to make sure that we're not being led astray from the truth and to make sure that 
our fundamental principles are not shifting based on our interaction with those worldly sources, but rather that we are submitting everything to the lordship of Christ and comparing everything ultimately to the teaching of Scripture and then, uh, by extension, comparing things to reality as we observe it and understand it. And that brings us then to our third point, which is purity and defilement. Now, given the nature of the false teaching that was floating around there on Crete, Paul lays down this axiom in verse 15 concerning purity and defilement. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and conscience are defiled. Now, given the Jewish nature of the false teaching that was going on, it seems that there was an emphasis on purity, perhaps some kind of a ritualistic or ceremonial purity. We don't know for sure if this was related specifically to what the apostle had confronted in Colossae or not, but we can certainly say of such teaching, which places an emphasis on ritualistic or ceremonial purity, what Paul had to say about the teaching in Colossae where he said, Colossians 2, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not taste, do not handle, do not touch? These are matter which have, to be sure, an appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. An emphasis on external and ritualistic purity might seem to be especially wise or especially holy, but it's not. With the death and resurrection of Christ, the ceremonial laws of Moses have come to an end. They're no longer binding on us as believers. What the writer of the Hebrews says of the, old, of the uh, sacrificial system in particular may be applied to the entirety of the Old Testament ceremonial law. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. There was a temporariness of these things. They were imposed until the time of reformation, until the time when Christ came and accomplished all for us in regard to our salvation. And so the ceremonies were not permanent And purity could never be attained simply by ritual itself. And the situation on Crete seems to have been such that these false teachers were teaching that purity is to be attained by perhaps avoiding certain things, perhaps avoiding certain foods, perhaps even by avoiding marriage. Um, But Paul says here that for those who are pure, all things are pure. As he said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, all things created by God are good, And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. As we find in Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. There's no greater sanctity that's achieved by those who abstain from certain foods. There's no greater sanctity or holiness achieved by those who abstain from marriage. To the pure, all things are pure. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This statement that all things are pure certainly does not apply to any kind of sinful activity that is condemned by the moral law of God, anything that's contrary to the love of God and love for neighbor. But again, what Paul is getting at here is this issue of ceremonial purity and viewing certain things, certain objects, 
as, as unclean or defiling. And Paul says, no, to the pure, all things are pure. Make use of it as you will for godly purposes, of course. And then on the flip side, he says that to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and conscience are defiled. They themselves are wicked, and as it were, everything that they touch becomes defiled. Not in its essence, obviously, but in its use, because being undefiled and unbelieving themselves, they will use whatever things they have for ungodly purposes. Sometimes those ungodly purposes are overtly sinful, in the sense of positively doing something which God forbids. Other times those ungodly purposes will be more in the category of sins of omission, using the things of the world for themselves and for their own glory instead of seeking the glory of God, seeking to love God, seeking to love their neighbors. In either case, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Everything that they have, they will use for sin because they are certainly not going to be using what they have to obey God. Now, according to the old fable, Midas turned everything that he touched into gold. And even so, the defiled and unbelieving turn everything that they touch into an instrument of sin, one way or another. And Paul elaborates on these defiled and unbelieving persons whom he has in mind in verse 16. He says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good work. These are the, are the false teachers that Titus is up against in Crete. They profess to know God, but in reality they do not. They actually deny God by their deeds. What do their deeds look like? In conduct, these men, Paul says, are detestable and disobedient. They are worthless for any good work. Since they are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure to them. Their minds and their consciences are defiled, and so everything that they touch and everything that they do is wicked. They're defiled in their thinking and in their moral evaluations. The conscience is our our inner self-consciousness that informs us as to whether our actions and attitudes are pleasing or offensive to God. And each of us has a conscience because we've been made in the image of God. Paul can speak even in Romans 2.15 of the work of the conscience of unbelievers. We all have a conscience, but the problem is that not all consciences are working as they ought to. The conscience can be either a good conscience or an evil conscience. A good conscience is one that has been cleansed of its guilt by the blood of Christ. A good conscience is one that is working as God intended it to work. It is a conscience that is taught by the Holy Spirit and rightly uses the law of God as the standard by which it evaluates right and wrong. But those who are unbelieving, Paul says, have defiled consciences. In other words, their consciences are not working as they ought to. This means that the moral judgments that they make are skewed and out of line with the word of God. That being the case, it's no surprise that they deny the Lord by their deeds. Because of their defilement, their detestable, their disobedience to God, as far as good works, good deeds are concerned, they are, they're worthless. They cannot perform good works. What this shows, then, is the absolute importance of obtaining this purity of which Paul speaks in verse 15. To the pure, everything is pure. It's pure because they use the things of the earth for the glory of God in the service of God. On the other hand, those who are defiled are wicked. And they're defiled in their hearts 
and they are worthless for any good deed. And those are the only two groups in the world, the pure and the defiled. And so then where does this purity come from? Because this is, this is the game changer right here. We've got purity and defilement. Where, whence comes this purity? This purity comes only through faith in Christ. We read in our unison reading from Hebrews 9 earlier, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is how we are cleansed. It's by grace, through faith, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And thus when Peter was speaking of the Gentiles and their conversion in Acts 15.9, he said that God made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. This is, this is what happens when someone is converted. Their hearts are cleansed. Their consciences are cleansed. Jew and Gentile alike, all who turn to Christ in faith will be cleansed. And then flowing from the cleansing and the purity that they have received to those who are pure, all things are pure. This is because, as Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty five, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The man whose heart has been cleansed by Christ will seek to do good because he has been made good by God in his heart. And then he'll seek to use all that he has for the glory of God and for the good of others. This is why this cleansing is necessary. It's because by nature we are all defiled by sin. And unless we're truly cleansed in our hearts through faith in Christ, we will embody the lives of these defiled and unbelieving of whom we read in verses 15 and 16. And this is the root, really, of all of the problems in the world today. We live in a deeply fractured and hurting world with all kinds of anger and violence, full of greed, theft, immorality, all kinds of wickedness. And this wickedness is carried out by sinners whose consciences are defiled. Some of them, to be sure, claim to know God, but by their wicked and defiled actions, they're giving ample evidence that they do not know him. And but for the grace of God, that describes all of us as detestable and unfit for any good work. That's all of us, apart from Christ. As a friend, if you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Christ, I want you to understand that this is you. As things stand, you are detestable and defiled. You are unfit for any good work. You don't have it in you to do good works because your heart is impure. Any righteousness that you may think that you have is but filthy rags in the sight of God. And so I beg you this morning, come to Christ for cleansing. Confess your sins to him. Seek mercy and grace. Believe that he is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. Believe that he went to the cross to bear the sins of sinners. Look to him in faith and find in him the cleansing of the heart, the mind, and the conscience that you so desperately need. Repent and believe today. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can find me after the service and I'd be delighted to tell you more. And for those of you who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, brothers and sisters in our Lord, hold fast to this clear and simple gospel. Don't give heed to the ideologies of the world that would offer you cleansing in any other way or would, that, or would deny that cleansing can be given in any way. Because there is a way of cleansing, but only one way. And that is by having your heart and conscience and life cleansed by the blood of Christ. Though the world hates and will continue to hate this truth concerning purity and how it is obtained, 
Don't let that bother you in the least. Purity comes not through ritual, not through philosophy, or not through good works, not even through contrition and penance. Purity comes through faith in Christ. Don't be surprised that the world hates this. It always has. And since then, we have been purified by faith. Let's live as those who are purified. Let's be those of whom it can be said, to the pure, all things are pure. Because we use what we have for the glory of God in all godliness. May God help us to that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great truth of the gospel, that there is cleansing from defilement. There is purity to be found, and it's found only in Christ. Father, we pray that we would ever run to Christ to be cleansed from sin. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would indeed live pure and godly lives in uh, this fallen world, that we would live in such a way as that others could see the difference and might give us an opportunity to bear witness to them, to where they can find the cleansing as well. And we ask your grace and blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.